Welcome to the Moms of Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Melissa, and my dear friend, Mandy. Mandy. What just happened? I know. (laughs) What just happened? I thought I could get you. I had to do it really, really fast because I knew you would come in, but I thought I'd mix it up this week. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Did I do it? Wow. You did. Yeah, you absolutely did. I was like, wait, is she doing like some (laughs) other thing? Did we talk about she was going to come first this time? Like, I don't know. I pushed wow. record and said it as quickly as possible to try and get it in there. Just, I want to keep everybody on their toes, you know, keep things fresh. We're going on our fifth year. We got to keep things fresh, exciting, and uh, I'll never do it again, but this time. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm very excited. Thank <laughs> you for that. <laughs> I do love that I think people think we plan a lot of these things, and it's like, no, absolutely not. We <laughs> totally just trick each other constantly, so it's fun. Yeah, yeah, you definitely got me on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Melissa, I just talked to you like two days ago, so I don't have anything nice to say. I mean, I have nice things to say. (laughs) Keeping that in. (laughs) I don't know why I just said that. I have nice things to say. I don't have anything to say is what I meant to say. I don't know Um, if that's that much nicer. (laughs) (laughs) Because we just talked to each other a couple days ago when we recorded the first part of this story. I'm really excited that we are back to finish it off today. Yeah. So as I just said, this is part two of our story on the murder of 39-year-old mother and wife, Connie DeBate. This is the second part of a two-part series on this, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, you will probably want to go back and do that first. There's a lot to this story, and in the first part, we covered a lot of information related specifically to the murder itself as well as to the crime scene. So before we get into the rest of the story this week, we're going to briefly summarize what we discussed and where we left off. Connie DeBate was shot to death inside the basement of her home in an alleged home invasion turned deadly. Her husband, Rick, was also in the home during the attack, and he allegedly suffered several different injuries after the intruder, a masked man wearing camouflage, tied him to a chair and used a razor knife to poke and cut Rick. Strangely, most if not all of the items used in this home invasion and attack were items that belonged to Rick DeBate himself that were found inside of his own home meaning that the intruder brought nothing with him, including no weapons, and just improvised with Rick's stuff once he got there. Rick gave multiple interviews to police, each time changing his story and adding more and more detail, until police finally told him that his story didn't really line up with what the evidence was showing. In a nutshell, Rick alleged that he had left for work on the morning of December 23rd at about 8.20 a.m., He says that he saw his wife, Connie, getting ready to leave for the gym before he headed out. About five minutes into his drive to work, Rick's phone started alerting him to activity on the home security system. Since he had forgotten his laptop at home, he decided to go back and get it and check on things at the house. When he arrived, he was met by this intruder in his bedroom closet. The intruder began attacking Rick, and then a short time later, Connie walked in the door, and the attacker chased her to the basement and shot her with Rick's gun that was kept down there. Rick was then zip-tied to a folding chair and tortured with a knife before the intruder fled, and Rick was able to get up the stairs to the kitchen and use his cell phone to dial 911. It was really quite a story, and officers needed a lot more information to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Rick was asked to elaborate on what his marriage to Connie was like, especially in the recent days. In one interview, the one that Rick gave at the hospital when he was taken there to be treated for these injuries he sustained in this attack, Rick admitted to the police that there was something going on, and there was a big secret. But he said it was no big deal and definitely not related to Connie's murder. So what was this big secret? Well, according to Rick, another woman had become pregnant with his baby, but... Also, according to Rick, his wife Connie was well aware of the situation. Not only that, but it was allegedly Connie's own idea for her husband to have a baby with this other woman, their friend named Sarah. Rick said that this pregnancy was unexpected, but that Connie had been handling it well, and she was excited to co-parent another child. Now, it goes without saying that there's all different types of relationships and family dynamics out there, and none of them are wrong if they work for you, but investigators were understandably suspicious of this entire story, and it's not hard to understand why. So was Rick telling the truth about any of this, or was this just more of Rick's lies? 
Do you want me to answer that or are we just letting the I want you to answer, <laughs> Melissa. I want you to weigh in here. <laughs> Big old fat lies. But let's talk more about it. So it was revealed that things within the couple's relationship may have been more strained than Rick led on. At 5.19 a.m. on December 4th, weeks before Connie was murdered, she was up early and creating a list in the Notes app on her phone. This note was titled, Why I Want a Divorce, and it had 39 reasons listed within. So we aren't going to read them all, but there are several that Connie included in her list that we thought we would mention. One is that he takes money from a lot of accounts that don't belong to him, says he's sorry, but takes no responsibility for it. The next is he lies to people and makes them think we have a great sex life and that we are this super couple. I'm tired of lying and acting like things are great when they aren't. The next, he does not take any responsibility for why I'm angry. He has to be the center of attention all the time. For example, at Disney, he was more worried about his costume looking good than running after the couple's son. Next, I don't know anything about his day, who he speaks to, or what goes on in his life other than work. He doesn't call me throughout the day. When he does, it's a two-second conversation that he does not remember anything that was discussed. He does not romance me unless forced. I cannot count on him to keep his promises ever. I don't feel like I can ever trust him. He never makes me feel like we are his top priority. When we are in bed, he only cares about himself. He promises to be home on time and is not. So at 5.45 a.m., Connie creates his other list titled The Good, and this was a much shorter list. There was only nine things on it. Among these pros of her marriage were, one, he babysits, two, he gets me tea, three, he does feet and neck rubs, four, when he is in a great mood, he is fun to be around, five, I'm myself around him. So as you can see, there were clearly some pretty big issues in the debate marriage and not really a lot of good to be found, including this whole tea thing. The one that really gets to me is that he babysits, like it's his kids not babysitting. But I know people that do feel this way and do call it that. No, no, no. Uh, They're your kids. We don't babysit them. Like (laughs) this is just you parenting. Rick was a type of guy who really cared so much about appearances. He wanted everyone to believe that he had this perfect life, a large home, nice vacations, a loving wife, two great sons, but that wasn't really the reality. The reality was that Rick was very deceitful, and he often lied to Connie about where he was and what he was doing. He'd tell her that he was working late or that his card game was running late, and he also had this credit card that Connie had no idea about. The statements actually were sent to a P.O. box that he had also secretly rented. But the biggest lie of all of them was that he was having this long-standing affair with a woman named Sarah. So we talked about this relationship in part one, but Sarah was allegedly this friend of the couple's who'd been wanting a baby of her own, but wasn't in a relationship of her own. Rick said that Connie wanted a child as well, but was unable to get pregnant. So the three of them all agreed that Rick could impregnate Sarah and that they would all raise the child as co-parents. Well, probably not surprising, but that wasn't quite how this situation went down at all. Rick was actually having a full-blown affair with Sarah and not the type of affair where his wife knew what was going on. Rick was actually lying and betraying both of these women. So Sarah was under the impression that she and Rick were going to end up together without Connie in the picture. Sarah was in love with Rick, and she told her friends that she had been in love with him since they were 14. Sarah and Rick never slept together as teenagers, but they did sleep together for the first time after Rick got married to Connie, but it was before Rick and Connie had their kids. Sarah had also gotten married, but in 2014, her marriage ended, and that's when things picked back up with Rick. It was during that summer in 2014 that Rick was really smooth-talking his way into Sarah's heart and telling her that he was going to divorce Connie so that they could be together. He actually promised Sarah that he was going to file for divorce, but that's not what he did. Instead, Rick actively participated in trying to fix his marriage with Connie. For months, Rick continued to tell Sarah that he was going to file for divorce, even saying at one point that it would be her Valentine's Day gift in 2015, which, woohoo, who says romance is dead? That is so (laughs) gross to be like, I've got the perfect gift for you. I'm going to divorce my wife. That's right. Oh. (laughs) 
So Rick never did file for divorce in February. Um, And then on April 1st, unbeknownst to Sarah, Rick and Connie even attended couples counseling together. Although it doesn't appear that they ever went back after that one visit, they just went that one time. Despite the back and forth and this confusion surrounding the state of Rick and Connie's marriage, Sarah stayed by his side, and she was convinced that he was going to leave Connie one day. And she had a good reason to think that, because Rick was continuously telling her that's what he was going to do. On May 1st, 2015, he told Sarah that he might file for divorce in the summer after his house was all fixed up. And the reason being for waiting was because he said that it was going to be a good idea because if he was going to divorce Connie, they were going to have to sell their house. And so having it fixed up already would facilitate the sale and make this whole thing a lot smoother. It was on June the 18th that Sarah revealed the big news that she was actually expecting a baby. She believed that they had conceived on May 28th during one of Rick's overnight visits. Ten days after finding out about the pregnancy, Rick did see a divorce attorney, but what Sarah didn't know was that he did not retain that attorney and he didn't go through with filing for a divorce either. In July, Sarah confided in her friends that Rick was super stressed about getting a divorce and that he needed to just calm down and focus, but she said that he was so worked up he wasn't able to calm himself down and he couldn't focus on one day at a time because he was so worried about everyone else and everything else, like his parents, his kids, what Connie would do, how many friends he would lose. It really seems like it was actually all about him, but in a way he's selling it to her to be about other people and what a great person he is to care for them. But he was really hung up on this notion that everyone would hate him and that his entire world would fall apart if the two divorced. He thought nothing else would be the same, so on and so on. In mid-August, Rick started saying things to Sarah that indicated he was going to try to stay with Connie. So for several weeks, it actually seemed like they were going to try to work things out. But on October 1st, Rick told Sarah he was going to see that divorce attorney again. And later in October, he said that the papers were being prepared. He told Sarah that he was going to talk to his parents and hopefully be able to move in with them temporarily. Then he was going to get this storage unit for his things and tell Connie he wanted a divorce. But by the end of October, Rick still hadn't served any divorce papers, nor had he moved out of the house. It was at this point that Sarah started to become really frustrated. She was nearly six months pregnant and rightfully felt like she had no idea what the future held for herself and her baby. I cannot imagine being in her shoes. Right? Okay, so here's the thing. Um, This isn't an an indefinite period of time before she has this baby. Like nine months is about it, maybe nine months, two weeks, but they're not going to let you go much further. So he really has a timeline if this is what he's planning to do. And he just keeps putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And yeah, I can't imagine what she would be thinking either. That's That would be a very stressful time for everyone. So Sarah tells Rick she's done and she's going to shut him out until he can prove that he wants to be there for her and the baby, aka finally go through with this divorce with Connie like he keeps saying and actually be with her. And Rick promised he was going to get it together and he wasn't going to let them down. So the following day, Rick gets a storage unit and moves out about half of his stuff. By mid-November, Rick claimed he was going to be moving out in the next week or two, and by the 20th, he said that he and Connie had talked about the divorce and they were both on the same page. A few days later, Rick told Sarah that for the sake of the kids, he and Connie were going to have a slow-moving divorce, but he said Connie knew about the infidelity and claimed she knew about the pregnancy as well, but he said she didn't know the full details about exactly who Sarah was, which is also interesting to me that whenever he sells a story to the police, it's, this is a long-term friend of ours. We've been friends with them forever. It seems very easy for the police to be able to find out, like, did Sarah and Connie speak? Did they text each other? You know, it's just another one of his lies. So on December 10th, Rick said the divorce papers should be served soon. The following week, he said they'd be served the week after that. Just continuing to put off this date more and more. Meanwhile, the birth of this baby is approaching rapidly, and we still have so much more to get into after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Today, 
Today, we are so excited to tell you guys about Ready, Set, Food. When my son was diagnosed with food allergies eight years ago, I was completely overwhelmed. Being told that simply eating crumbs of certain foods could send him to the hospital or worse, it's not something you ever really stop worrying about. But we aren't alone. In fact, one in 12 babies develop food allergies every year, but it doesn't have to be that way. Evidence-based research, USDA guidelines, pediatricians, and allergists all agree. Feeding babies small amounts of common food allergens like peanut, egg, and milk consistently for six months or more starting at four months of age can actually prevent severe food allergies from developing by up to 80%. But how do you know how much and how often you should feed your baby these allergenic foods? Well, here's where Ready, Set, Food comes in. Ready, Set, Food was developed by an allergist and mother of two, and she knows how hard it can be to meet those medical guidelines on your own. So this resulted in a gentle guided system that takes both the mess and stress out of introducing allergens. From the daily mix-ins you stir into a bottle or food, or the new organic baby oatmeal that has nine top allergens already inside for meals that are ready in just a few seconds. I only wish that Ready, Set, Food had been around when my son was a baby, but now it's here and we're so excited to share it with you. Head over to readysetfood.com slash momsandmurder and use code momsandmurder for 15% off your first order of Ready, Set, Food and give your child the best chance to avoid developing a severe food allergy. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One NA, member FDIC. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were just getting into more of Rick's lies that he's been kind of getting entangled in, if you will. He has a full-blown affair going on with Sarah. She is now pregnant with his baby about six months along, and Rick is putting off really doing much of anything. He keeps saying he's going to divorce Connie, but then at the same time, he's actually trying to work on his relationship with Connie. So nobody really knows what's exactly going on here. As you may have guessed by now, Rick had not talked to Connie about getting a divorce at all. Everything he told Sarah about what he was doing with his marriage was a complete lie. But with the pregnancy progressing further and further and the arrival of a new baby just around the corner, things were starting to get a little hairy for Rick. December was particularly rocky, as we kind of started to explain in the beginning of the episode. It was December 4th that Connie created those notes in her phone with a list of pros and cons to being married to Rick. So at that point, we know for sure that Connie was also thinking about divorce, whether or not Rick had even broached the subject with her yet or not. On the weekend before her murder, Connie and Rick traveled to Vermont for an overnight stay. This is the trip we mentioned that ended up being a romantic trip where the couple allegedly reconnected. Connie posted about this trip on Facebook, and Sarah saw the post and got upset because she, of course, believes that Rick and Connie are divorcing. So Sarah confronted Rick about the post that she saw, and he told her that what she read on Facebook wasn't the truth. They had to go to Vermont to pick up some personal items, you know, that belonged to his late uncle. He said the new owners of his uncle's home had found some things and they wanted to give them to family. That was the only reason they were going to Vermont. He said that they had dropped the kids off at his parents' house, and that gave him and Connie some time to work out some of these things regarding the divorce. He also said that Connie just wasn't ready to be public about it on Facebook yet. In the same conversation, Rick texted Sarah, quote, This is certainly nothing romantic. We have a lot to work out and she was gone all week, end quote. As usual, Rick was lying. He and Connie weren't having a terrible, awkward weekend at all. They were trying to rekindle their romance. Eventually, though, Sarah believed everything Rick told her, and she even apologized for asking so many questions about his life. On the evening of the 19th, Rick and Connie were supposed to visit a family member who lived in Vermont and have dessert with them, but the couple didn't show up. Rick sent a text to the relative at 923 that night that said he was sorry they didn't swing by, but Connie was, quote, in a mood, end quote, and he was trying to have a date night with her to cheer her up. The next night, Rick and Connie did go to the relative's house, and Connie was pretty quiet. She said she had drank a lot the night before. The couple returned home on the 20th and began the new week ahead. We talked in part one about how Connie was trying to organize and simplify the couple's finances, and on the 21st, she was texting with Rick about some of these things they could do to start saving money and working towards paying some things off. But then on the 22nd, 
Connie found out that Rick had added sports channels to their cable package at some point without her knowledge, and they now owed over $1,200 to their cable company. Connie fired off a sarcastic text that said, quote, I'm having a great day off and merry effing Christmas, end quote. Rick replied, quote, it will be a very merry Christmas. Just give me a call when you're ready, end quote. Later that day, Sarah and Rick texted back and forth, and he said, quote, I miss how comfortable you both, meaning Sarah and the baby, make me feel. We have so much to do this week. I'm not prepared for Christmas, and I have no idea how much stuff is going on. I have not exactly been firing on all cylinders, but I feel recharged after spending some time with you, end quote. So Rick makes plans to meet up with Sarah the next day for them to be able to exchange Christmas gifts and talk about everything such as how the divorce discussions with Connie went over the weekend in Vermont. So at 10 p.m. on the 22nd, Rick sent a text to Sarah that said, quote, see you tomorrow, my little love nugget, end quote. Sarah wrote back (laughs) the same sort of sentiment. Nugget? No, don't call me that. (laughs) Also, I'm like almost six foot tall. Nobody's calling me a little nugget, a little anything. (laughs) But the next day when Sarah texted Rick, she got no response. And so that's when she really started to worry. The morning of December 23rd is when this alleged home invasion that left Connie dead had occurred. We spent a lot of time in part one going over the details of the crime, according to Rick, and we started going into what the investigation was beginning to show. At the end of part one, we left off with Rick giving his final statement to police before he lawyered up. His story that he was still sticking to was that Connie was murdered by a masked intruder, and that was that. Also, I'd like to point out, so the intruder comes with no knife, no zip ties, no anything, but does have a mask and camouflage? Right. That doesn't sound right. So he admitted to police that he was expecting this baby with another woman, but he claimed that it was all out in the open and that Connie knew about it and even wanted it to happen. But that couldn't have been farther from the truth. Later in the evening on the day of the murder, police went out and spoke with Sarah. It was about 9.45 p.m. when they showed up. Sarah told them that she had heard about this incident at Rick's house, and she knew that Rick was hurt and that Connie had been killed. She said that she had known Rick since high school and that they had reconnected about a year earlier after she had divorced her husband. The relationship turned romantic, and in the spring of 2015, she and Rick began having an affair. Rick started talking about divorcing Connie pretty early on in this affair. And the way he made it seem was that Connie would be all for it because they had mutual feelings of unhappiness in the marriage. When Sarah got pregnant, it was completely by accident and not expected at all. She said that Rick was surprised and he knew that this would be a big, messy situation for him since he was married, but he told her that his divorce from Connie was going forward no matter what. According to Sarah, Connie didn't know about the pregnancy at all, and as far as she knew, Rick wasn't planning on telling her until after Christmas. Sarah told officers that she had no idea whether or not Rick had ever even served Connie with divorce papers. She believed that they were going to be discussing things on their trip to Vermont over this previous weekend, but she knew for sure that Rick had not told Connie about the baby. She said the last time she heard from him was the night before when they discussed meeting up the next day, which would be that day. Sarah actually did hear from Rick again, but it wasn't until Christmas Day. He called her from a new phone number at about 7.30 p.m., and they talked for 11 minutes. Rick told Sarah that he, quote, didn't do it, but they didn't talk about the investigation at all. He just asked her if she was doing okay, which, (laughs) no, (laughs) obviously not. You know, like that's, oh my gosh, what, what? (laughs) Yeah. Investigators also spoke with many of Connie's family members, and they all had different things to say about Rick and the stories that he'd been telling police. There were a lot of opinions, but this one in particular stood out because it highlights the way Rick changed his story constantly and the way he acted so paranoid in the days following the shooting. Members of Connie's family told investigators that Rick showed up at a family meeting on December 24th, which was the day after the murder. The first thing Rick says when he walks into the room is, quote, it wasn't me, end quote, which obviously strikes Connie's family as being a very odd thing to say because he's showing more concern for himself than, you know, what happened to his wife, not saying, I'm so sorry, I can't believe this happened, I miss her so much, just, it wasn't me. So when it came to talking about exactly what happened, Rick told Connie's family that he had been on his way to work when he realized he forgot his laptop or wallet, and when he walked inside the house, he hears this noise in the bedroom, at which point he discovers the intruder. 
The intruder demanded Rick's credit cards and cash, but the only thing Rick could recall about this person was that he had a deep voice. He said that he heard Connie's car, so he yelled for her to run and tried to warn her that someone was in the house. He said something about falling down the stairs, but nothing about actually hearing any gunshots. Later on, after Rick was gone, the family members talked about how Rick's story was different. They overheard him telling someone else that he heard gunshots and he couldn't hear the intruder because his ears were ringing. Other inconsistencies in his story to the family, including that he was tied to a chair and cut with a razor before he managed to free one of his arms. He never mentioned the blowtorch at all, but one of the relatives had previously overheard him talking about that too. Rick even said he believed Connie was trying to save him by going downstairs to get the gun. But her family really had a hard time believing this because Connie had worked on an ambulance in her younger years, and her first reaction would have been to dial 911, not to run downstairs to the basement for a gun. And keep in mind, they know they keep the ammunition in a, on a different floor, so it, it right. really doesn't add up at all. Family members also recalled times when Rick spoke negatively about Connie to them, such as one time during this party that Rick and Connie hosted at their house, Rick got really drunk and started making inappropriate comments and gestures, and then he called Connie the B-word in front of everyone, including her family. Just, oh, I can't understand it. Terrible. The relatives knew the couple had at least one gun in the home, but said Connie was always really uncomfortable around it, and it was Rick's idea to have one for protection and to go shooting with his dad. Connie's family had absolutely no idea that Rick was having an affair or that he was expecting a baby with Sarah. And Connie definitely couldn't have known because they were convinced that she would have told them. And similarly, she would have told them if there were any talk of divorce because Connie was really close with her family and would have looked to them for support for these hard life situations. And she did not. Investigators poured through Connie's Facebook messages and found no mention of divorce or of Sarah's baby, leading them to believe that Connie didn't know anything about either. One of Connie's family members said that Connie probably would have liked to have another baby, but that it was Rick who didn't want to. They said Connie would absolutely not be okay with Rick having a baby with someone else, and she would flip out if she found out about the affair. Another relative said that while Connie never talked about marital problems, she did mention something about missing money back in June of 2012, and she also said that Rick had taken out several credit cards without her knowledge, and the same relative also thought that the couple may have been seeing a counselor, which, as we mentioned before, they did see a counselor that one time in April of 2015, but possibly never again after that. There's no, we couldn't find any evidence that they did after that. So among the people that investigators spoke to was Connie's workout buddy from the gym. This friend said that Connie had confided in her that she was unhappy in her marriage and that things weren't looking good. Connie talked about the financial issues, all the responsibilities of handling her son's medical issues, and the responsibilities of taking care of the household. She never said she was getting a divorce or that she and Rick were involved with other people, but Connie did tell this friend that Rick sometimes loses control. Rick, on the other hand, did tell at least one of his friends that he was thinking about divorcing Connie, and he even admitted the affair and told his friend that Sarah was 10 weeks pregnant. He said he had feelings for Sarah, but he also loved his kids that he had with Connie, and he was worried that she would leave him when she found out about the affair and especially about the baby. Rick's friend said that in the fall of 2015, as far as he knew, Connie and Rick were working on their marriage. A few days after the murder, Rick posted on Facebook, quote, Many questions are unanswered, but we are all doing our best to move forward, as impossible as it seems. He expressed worry about the future for his two sons and thanked everyone who had reached out to the family to offer their condolences. So it goes without saying that everyone, including the investigators, were convinced that Rick had killed Connie himself, so they started working on building their case against him, but they continued to tell the public that there was no threat to society. It was revealed that Connie and Rick had $475,000 life insurance policies on each other that they took out back in 2004. Five days after Connie was killed, Rick called the insurance company to make a claim, and they put the policy on hold pending the police investigation, which as we know, did not go very well for Rick. As it turned out, another one of Rick's lies was about this alarm system. So he claimed that he had installed this alarm system after their cars were vandalized. But investigators found out that he actually purchased the security system around the same time he and Sarah conceived their baby. So he bought the system on May 20th, 2015 and activated it on June 8th. 
But this vandalism that he spoke about didn't happen until October of 2015. So this clearly wasn't the catalyst for getting the security system. He had already purchased it. It was also clear that the couple hardly even used the system. Besides December 23rd, it had only been used twice in the month of December, both times when the couple had been out of town. So data collected from Connie's phone, her email, social media, and her Fitbit proved that she was alive until at least 10.05 a.m. on December 23rd. So in the end, they were able to prove that Rick's timeline did not add up to what the evidence actually showed. According to the evidence, Rick never left his house at all, except to take the kids to the bus stop at the end of their driveway. Based on what he told investigators, Connie would have been dead by 9.05 at the latest, but investigators know she didn't get home until 9.18 and that she was still alive at 10.05 a.m. Rick told investigators the whole incident lasted five minutes, but he didn't call 911 until 10.19 a.m. And we still have more to get into the story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. We hear a lot about burnout lately. In fact, it's a phrase I've used more than once, especially around my house. Some days I feel like my wheels are just spinning, but I'm really not getting anywhere. I need something to change. I'm losing my motivation. I'm irritable and I'm tired. And while a lot of times we think of burnout as being something we associate with work, it doesn't necessarily have to be work-related. Life can make you feel burnout as well. It's just science. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Just being able to talk to someone and help figure out what's the root cause in the stress of your life can be invaluable. Therapy is an incredible tool that's helped me throughout my life, and BetterHelp can make it easy to have access to therapy. Scheduling therapy before BetterHelp was an absolute nightmare, especially when my kids were little. I'd have to schedule around times my husband was home, and eventually I wasn't able to attend because there wasn't a time available that I could make work. But with BetterHelp, they have therapists available to help fit into your schedule and help you reach success. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash moms. That's betterhelp.com slash moms. If I told you sleep is one of the most important things you can do for yourself, you'd probably say, duh, Melissa, tell me something I don't know. So then I'd say, but did you know that sleepers who routinely get sleep using their Sleep Number 360 smart bed features get almost 100 hours more proven quality sleep per year? And sure, you'd like to pretend you knew that, but instead you're probably figuring out all the cool things you could do with 100 quality hours. Maybe you could learn a new language, take up rock climbing, or watch old seasons of Real Housewives of New York, but only the good ones. When I'm sleeping on my sleep number setting at a 30, my sleep IQ is between an 85 and a 90, which is incredible as someone who has always struggled with getting a good night's sleep. My sleep number bed is purely magic. It helps me get that quality sleep that helps me out during my waking hours. Having a good night's sleep means I'm less burnt out, less of a grump, and even have less cravings. Good sleep can feel magical, which is why not getting sleep makes you, well, less than magical. And I've discovered that my perfect sleep number setting is a 30, but occasionally I even go down to a 25 for an even softer experience. I always wake up feeling like I got the best night of sleep, and my sleep IQ score of 87 confirms that I am sleeping better than ever. Discover special offers now for a limited time at your local Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com slash moms. Sleep Number, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own, and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes, not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing totally dependent on me, and now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable, and I'm supposed to have the answers. Well, with time and treatment, it went away, but what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now, baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here, a brand new dermatologist-approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great, gentle clean. Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were 
pretty much getting into how things are kind of crumbling apart now for Rick DeBate and the story that he has given to the police about this intruder that allegedly came into his home and shot his wife to death in their basement. Everything he's told the police is not matching up and lining up with what the evidence is showing. And now the police have been able to even put together a more accurate timeline of events of the morning. And it's becoming more and more clear that Rick is not being truthful. Based on all the evidence, this is what really happened on December 23rd. Rick put the kids on the bus between 8.15 to 8.20, but he never left the house after coming back from dropping them off. Instead, he went on his computer, checked his Facebook and his email, and he looked up innocent things online, such as long-lasting tattoo ideas and tattoo ideas for men arm. He also looked at a Star Wars spoiler article. Connie left home at 8.46 and went to the gym, where she arrived at 8.55. As soon as Connie left that morning, Rick started playing around with the alarm system. He armed it and then disarmed it, then opened and closed the basement door, and he never armed the alarm system again after that. He then went back to his computer and sent that email to his boss about the alarm going off in his house. He sent that email at 9.04 a.m., but then he deleted it after he sent it. At 9.18 a.m., right before Connie got home, Rick downloaded her gym's group exercise schedule. When Connie pulled up at 9.18, she sat in her car for a few minutes talking on the phone with a family member. We're not sure who it was, but they only spoke for a few minutes until about 9.22. She told this relative that she had made a psychotherapist appointment and asked if they could talk later, but when the relative called her back, Connie never answered. At 9.23 a.m., Connie entered the house through the garage and into the kitchen. Records show that she got on Facebook at 9.40 and sent a Facebook message at 9.46. Her Fitbit data showed that she was inactive from 9.49 to 10.01, and she moved again from 10.02 to 10.03, but was stationary at 10.04, and the last movement registered by her Fitbit was at 10.05. Furthermore, the Fitbit data showed that Connie was minimally active all morning, with nothing to indicate that she was running around her house or frantically trying to make it to a gun in the basement or wrestling around with an intruder. From the time that Connie got home at 9.18 to the time her Fitbit logged her last movement at 10.05, she walked a total of 1,218 feet. But if you followed Rick's timeline, she would have only walked about 125 feet because according to Rick, she walked through the door and then was immediately chased down the stairs. So she wouldn't have been walking around for that long. Rick set off the panic alarm at 10.11 a.m., Seven minutes later, he tried to dial 911, but he misdialed, and one minute later, he successfully dialed 911. And then first responders arrived on the scene at 10.30 a.m. It was April 14, 2017, when 40-year-old Rick was finally arrested and charged with Connie's murder, as well as tampering with evidence and making a false statement. His bond was set at $1 million. There was so much evidence against Rick that his arrest warrant was 50 pages long. And personally, I have no idea how long arrest warrants typically are, but our researcher Haley said that the ones that she has seen are typically about seven pages. So 50 pages is kind of a lot for an arrest warrant. Yeah. And my goodness, this is what, a year and a half after the murder that they're finally arresting him and they have 50 pages? Right. Wow. Right. Yeah. It's it's a lot. On April 19th, Rick was somehow bonded out of jail and would remain free until his trial. So his family actually put up four pieces of property to equal $800,000 in collateral. They put up three um, homes that his parents owned, and they also put up Rick and Connie's house. And they ponied up $90,000 in cash and then funded the rest, about $10,000, through a bail bondsman. So this is crazy to me because usually when you hear somebody who has like a million dollar bond, you're like, oh, they're never going to bond out because who's going to put up a million dollars? But Rick's parents found a way and they got him out of jail. I just think that's mind blowing because I feel like that you don't hear about that a lot. Yeah. Jury selection was finally complete for Rick's trial in early 2020, but due to the arrival of COVID-19, the trial was put on hold. When the courts reopened in August of 2020, the original jury that they had selected was dismissed and Rick's trial was kept on hold for a while longer. It wasn't until late February of this year, 2022, that another jury was finally selected. Prosecutors told the jury that Connie was completely in the dark about her husband's affair and the fact that he had gotten another woman pregnant. 
They said that they had looked through thousands of messages between Connie and her friends and never once saw a mention of getting divorced from Rick. And they pointed out that Connie obviously didn't know about the infidelity because it wasn't on her cons list that she created in her phone in early December. A reasonable person would assume that if she knew about the cheating, it would be on the list. And I would go so far as to say it might be number one on the list. For Uh, sure. Yeah. So the state said that they did find evidence that Connie was feeling fed up with Rick and considered leaving him because she was tired of the lack of support and the lack of love. They alleged that Rick was merely a ticking time bomb, trying to carry on two serious relationships at the same time, but he knew he was running out of time. He also knew that a divorce would surely uncover all the other things that had been going on and that this life that he had carefully curated was going to come crashing down and there was nothing he could do about it. They said the trip to Vermont was really a make or break moment for Rick, who at this point had not yet made a decision about what to do. They said his quote unquote solution was to kill Connie and blame it on a made up intruder, a story that appeared to be entirely fabricated based on evidence from the scene. Finally, the prosecutors told the jury that Rick killed Connie when she got home from the gym that morning. Then he staged the scene, pressed the panic button, and dialed 911. Rick's defense team tried to claim that the investigation was prejudicial because they only focused on Rick from the start. They claimed that they picked Rick as their suspect and then molded the investigation to make him look guilty, which in some cases I would say that that might be a concern, but in this case... I feel like it's less of a thing like I'm I'm less bothered by that in this case because who else would they even go investigate? Like Rick was home at the time that this happened. Obviously, he is going to be suspect number one. Right. Well, you're most likely to be killed by somebody close to you. So you're already up at the top of the list. He's the only other person home. And everything he said was a lie they could figure out. So it's very right. easy to figure out how it would be like him and not this intruder who didn't even bother to come with a zip tie. Right, exactly. The state fired back, though, pointing out that they had over 600 pieces of evidence and over 100 witnesses and that their investigation was more than thorough. As we said, 50-page arrest warrant seems like they definitely did their due diligence on this one. The defense tried to call the accuracy of this Fitbit data into question, and they said that the jury should focus more on the cleaning lady who said that she may have seen a large green figure rush past the window while she was dusting on the day of the murder. They also allege that Rick wouldn't be able to stage a crime scene so quickly after hitting the panic alarm. But the state said no, he'd been planning this for months, so he knew what he was going to be doing. Rick took the stand and testified in his own defense. He said that he was innocent and that an intruder killed Connie. He admitted that at the time of the shooting, he was in love with two women and said that he didn't want to push either one of them away. He said he lied about the affair to the police at first because he was terrified, but he insisted that Connie did know about this pregnancy and that that part at least was true. Sarah also testified by the time the trial was going on, the baby that she had with Rick was seven years old, though, and we don't have a lot of details about what she said, but I'm assuming that she wasn't testifying in his defense. On May 10th, 2022, after a pretty quick deliberation, the jury found Rick guilty on all counts, the murder, lying to police, and the tampering with evidence. His bond was immediately increased to $5 million, and he was taken to jail while he awaits his sentencing. So far, nobody has forked over the $5 million, so he's still behind bars, but it's only been a couple of weeks, so maybe mom and dad have more houses to spare. Following the verdict, Connie's brother Keith told the media that it was a relief to hear this verdict, but it was also really traumatic. He was in shock when he heard that the jury had made their decision so quickly, which as thinking about the family of a victim in this case and everything they've been through after they've already picked a jury for this trial, you know, they are thinking they're going to get on with this and then they have the pandemic and they have to put this off. Then they have a new trial, you know, for for her family. I just can imagine just the weight of everything, you know, finally having this verdict being read and, you know, finally having justice for her. Those of you who follow true crime stories regularly may have heard this case referred to as the Fitbit trial due to the technology and the data that was used in the investigation, but Connie's family doesn't want her story being remembered that way at all, which is why we didn't really focus heavily on that aspect of the case. Her family really wants the public to recognize this case for what it is. It was a domestic violence homicide. It's very important to her family that more work be done to end domestic violence-related homicides and to support victims and survivors of similar crimes. Connie was a beautiful and loving mother to her two boys, and she was murdered in cold blood by the man who vowed to always protect her. 
Rick's sentencing is scheduled for September of this year, and he is facing anywhere from 25 to 60 years. His defense has already stated that they plan to appeal his conviction. Connie's family hopes that he is sentenced to life behind bars so he doesn't have the opportunity to hurt anybody else. Rick is currently incarcerated in the Hartford Correctional Facility, and hopefully that is where he will be for a very long time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this is a really, uh, really terrible case, but it's so involved and it almost, you can understand how this case was sensationalized in the media because of the types of details that you have in this case. It's just, it's really terrible and just crazy to me how people try and do this, how they try to carry on two lives like this. And this is big stuff. I mean, you have a whole family and a life with your wife, you know, and these two little boys that you have. And now you have a girlfriend that's having a baby and the wife doesn't know about this. And you have the situation, of course, with the baby. It's like a tick. Like they said, it was a ticking time bomb just waiting for something to happen. Something was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. And it just blows my mind, though, that people um, get into these kinds of situations and have to figure out what to do. But this is not what to do. No, this is absolutely not what to do. And it makes me sad because it feels like Connie was like, okay, you know, this this is not going the way I'd hoped or planned and might have been open to the idea of a divorce. And, of course, it would not make Rick look good, which is really the whole issue here, that you have somebody with such a big ego, really, who is um, – you know, wants everything to look perfect. So this isn't going to look good if he goes through with this divorce. And and yeah, but that's because of your choices, sir. But here's that's my your thing. Choices. If you're so concerned about appearances and you're concerned enough like that everyone's going to hate me and think this and that about me if I get a divorce from my wife, like it never crossed your mind what people might think about you if you're a murderer I know. Like, isn't Thank that, you. doesn't that cross your mind as more of a concern about what people are going to think about you for the rest of time? I, I don't get it. Right. Including your kids. I mean, it just so much. Now everyone. So you go from disappointing a few people, you know, people being upset, Connie being mad, all of that to literally being a murderer and having to live with that, that you've taken away your kid's mom and you've taken away, you know, her family members, sister, daughter, all of that. But, you know, you thought you'd get away with it. I don't know. It just I, – I will never understand – I will never understand these stories, Mandy. Never, ever. Which is a good thing that we can't understand how people yes. could get there. It's scary yes. if you're like, yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, man. Okay, Melissa, are we ready to turn the page and go to last thing before we go? We are. So last week, which technically was two days ago, you did some summer fun facts. And so in that same vein, I thought I would do some summer music fun facts because I know you're a big music lover. And so I'm going to ask you just some questions about different summer songs over the years, and we'll see how you do with the guesses. Summer songs. Okay. Okay. So in the summer of 2000, there were the top two songs. One was It's Gonna Be May, or It's Gonna Be Me, what normal people say, by NSYNC. (laughs) That was number two. Do you know what the number one song would have been in the summer of 2000? And if you don't, it's quite all right. I can give you a clue. Let's see. If NSYNC was number two, I'm going to say... I don't know. Did the Backstreet Boys have a number one song? No, surprisingly. It's actually Matchbox 20. What? One of their biggest songs was Bent. That was wow. the number one. I know. That, I haven't heard that song in forever. I know. Matchbox 20 beating in sync, though, in 2000 is kind of wild. in my mind. I know. Right? That's crazy. Yeah. Okay, next one is there are two artists that have never had summer charting songs. And they're actually – I was very surprised to read these two artists. The first one is Michael Jackson – Never had a summer charting song. And the other, do you know who the other would be? Think a huge star. I don't know. Think, um, I think the biggest pop star of our generation, of our time. Biggest? Britney Spears? There you go. It's Britney Spears. (laughs) You're kidding. Isn't that wild? So she must have always released her songs like around Thanksgiving. (laughs) I can't figure that out. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah, Yeah. that's crazy. Well, because it just seems like at the time, especially when she was at the height of her 
um, career and at the height of her popularity, it seemed like she always had something out. So that is crazy that um, there was never any summer singles. Yeah, that's according to a BuzzFeed article. So go at them if if I was wrong on that. If we're but. wrong, yeah. If <laughs> yeah. you're a true Britney Spears um, fan and you know that we're wrong, just yeah. you don't have to tell us. Instead of leaving Britney <laughs> alone, leave us alone. Exactly. Um, <laughs> the next one, Mandy in 1987, the year you were born, do you know what the top summer hit was? Um, <laughs> I can give you, do you want me to give you the artist? Sure. Okay. Whitney Houston. And it's a fun song. I want to dance with somebody. Perfect. You're so good at this. That's like one of my favorite songs ever. I listen to it in the gym all the time. Really? Okay. So yeah. I call that an extrovert song. So now let's move to 1983, the year I was born. This is an okay. introvert song. <laughs> <laughs> what was the number one summer hit of 1983? I'll give you a clue. The uh, artist is The Police. I think it's adorable that you think I know anything about okay. police. Okay, you know this song. It's like known I as do. a stalking song. Um, oh, a stalking song. It's called Every Breath You Take. Maybe you've heard of it. Oh, yes, I have heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I like that that's wow. like, I was like, wow, these are like, instead of uh, Zodiac signs, like I'm starting to believe in the summer your summer hit summer song. song. Yeah, yeah. totally That's you your... and mine is totally me. Not yeah. the stalker part, but just like <laughs> stay away from me. Um, okay, and last thing, this podcast started in 2017, which blows my mind. And I've already mentioned that before in the episode, but we're coming up on five years, so I'm nostalgic and all of that. But do you know what the number one summer song in 2017 was? Your son loved this song. Oh, is it Despacito? You killed this, Mandy. You've got like <laughs> almost everything right. Yes. That was in my son's um, – he loved listening to Spanish music for a while. Yeah. And we discovered some very nice and very uh, – what do you call it when music – I mean, I don't even know how to describe music. Nice music. Yeah. I still listen to a lot of it. Sometimes I'll turn some stuff on that, that he used to like back then and he'll be like, what is this? And I'm like, Listen years ago, you were all about this. <laughs> I know. Well, do you remember? Okay, don't hate me to your oldest son, but whenever he liked Maddie B, yes, my kids and I talk about like my daughter and I talk about it all the time. She'll be like, do you I think he's Maddie still B? like a YouTube star. He but is. I, I mean, I've never looked him up now because he's obviously like a he's child. like an adult. Well, he's not now. even a child. And, yeah, he's an adult now. But yeah, no, um, he had like the most adorable little music videos. That was one of the little YouTube kids I actually could take having on the TV. For the longest time. I've got to send you a video that he recreated a Taylor Swift song and like it looks like somebody dies in it. It's wild. I was like, how did this happen? (laughs) Yeah. I found it like a few months ago and was like, oh my gosh, what is this? But yeah. Yeah, Mandy. How does that seem like it was just yesterday and just like forever ago at the same time? That's crazy. I know. it was. I mean, and just even thinking Despacito being five years ago is just wild to me. Definitely. Wow. There you go, Mandy. And time goes on. (laughs) Something like that. All right, guys. Well, that was it for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.